So I want to start today by telling you how my Wednesday went. I had our garden hose, we were watering some stuff, and had the hose going for a while, and I thought, hey, I need something in the basement, and I went down to the basement, and you know when you start your, your washing machine, when you're washing clothes, like you hit the power button, hit start, and then after a little bit, the water, you start hearing the water going into the drum. I heard that sound, and I was like, oh, that's really strange. It sounds like our washing machine. I wonder what that is. So I go to the other side of our basement, and I see this. So go ahead and cut it there. So if that was you, be honest, would you have swore? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Mike on our tech team was like, you want me to edit that part out? I was like, yeah. I said, what the heck? So God, if you didn't want me to cause, why did you flood? No, anyway. So what, what I discovered was evidently you're not supposed to leave your garden hose connected to the spigot over the winter. Because, do you have that picture? Uh, this will happen to your pipe. So what happened is the, that there was water because I didn't take the hose off. It left water in the supply line and then it froze. And then the very first time I used it, it blew up and then did that. Anyway, so I, would you have known what to do in that moment? Like I called a friend of mine who's a plumber. He's like, dude, I'm coming right over. Just don't touch anything. So anyway, but I turned the water off. The plumber came, fixed everything. We dried it out. Everything's great now. But so many of us at different points in our lives feel like that. Like we're looking at something in our lives and we're like, something's wrong. And oftentimes when something's wrong with our lives, it goes, it goes by different names. We will call unhealthy like we feel unhealthy or something's not right, or something's off, or I don't feel good, or I am sick. We use phrases like that whenever we're doing that. And what, we, what we're implying is, is that there is some healthy point we want to get back to. Like, here's where we are, something is broken, something needs fixed, and then we, there is this point, there, there's this healthier version of us that we want to get to. And the problem is, it's kind of like, when the light goes off on your dashboard, how many of you, you're like, the light goes off on your dashboard, you're like, I don't know what that light means, where's the manual? And that happens to me all the time, like, what does this mean? And what happens is that when, some, when we are unhealthy or we don't feel well or something's not right, the light's going off, but we don't need the light. We know that there's something wrong. The problem is we don't know how to fix it. And so I had this insight last year as I was going through the Gospel of Matthew. It occurred to me that, when, that Jesus in the Gospels is called the author of life. And it occurred to me that 2,000 years ago, God came to earth and actually lived as a human being to give us and model for us a simple plan for how to live a fully complete, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word uh, shalom, a whole life, a life of wholeness. Now, there is this verse in the New Testament, um, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that I have read this, I can't tell you, my whole life. It says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And what does that mean? 
That means that we're to live morally the way Jesus did, right? We're to love the poor and evangelize our friends and stop lying, being mean to people, all, all stuff like that, right? But what I've come to believe is that what the Bible is teaching is, yes, we're to live morally like Jesus, but we're actually to live like Jesus, like actually live like Jesus, like actually live the way he lived. That 2,000 years ago, God had one shot to come to earth and say, I want to model for you the optimal way a human being ought to live as to, to, to be fully whole, to, to experience full wholeness in health and life. Yeah, I've got three years to do it, and I'm going to do it through the life of Jesus. And so Jesus came and went from Nazareth, where he grew up as a kid at 30 years of age, to go to Capernaum. And then what happened was he modeled for us what First Timothy calls the life that is truly life. Like there is a way of living that is not actually living, that's not life-giving. And so what Jesus did is he came and he modeled that for us. So what we're doing is we're starting a short series today called Rise Up. For, for, for all of us who have different areas of our lives where we are living, but we're not living the life that is truly life, whole life, full life. And the series is about emotional health and resilience, and we're going to talk about how you can't be spiritually healthy if we are emotionally unhealthy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven different areas. Real quick, I'm going to fire them at you. Seven areas that Jesus modeled for us wholeness. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to pull your pens out. If everybody get a pen and a piece of paper right now, I'm, every single time I go through one of these, I'm going to say, okay, on a scale from 1 to 10, what are you in this area? 1 would be like I'm totally blowing it. 10 would be, i got to be honest, I'm as good as Jesus right now. So uh, on a scale of 1 to 10... How well are you doing in these seven areas? Now, why are we doing this? Because over the last couple of weeks, um, I've had an opportunity to, to talk to a number of medical experts who are Christians, but they are the best in the field. And every single time I talk to them that, hey, before someone goes to you for counseling or before someone goes to you for medication to deal with, gosh, a whole host of issues, anxiety, depression, a whole host of emotional issues. What should someone be doing in their life before they come to you? Like, what are the boxes that you checked? And it was staggering that what they listed was exactly what Jesus modeled for us. I'm excited to jump into this. Number one, this is going to shock to you. What's the number one thing God modeled for us when he came to earth? He has one shot to model for us. What does whole living look like? Number one. Jesus walked. Jesus walked a lot. One of the first things we notice is that when God became a human being, he didn't go and live inside some temple somewhere, and everybody walked to this God to worship. God walked to people. Like, the first thing that we read that Jesus did, Matthew 4.18 says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. It's just what he did. Mark chapter 2, verse 14, as he walked along... 
came to the tax collector's booth. This guy loved walking so much. In Matthew 14, 25, it says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And we're like, Jesus, it's a lake. Why don't you swim? And he's like, I'd rather walk. I love walking. Now, in January of this past year, Dan and I had an opportunity to initiate, and we are continuing to build, this relationship with Palestinian missionaries. In fact, we are going to be partnering with them. We're going to talk more about this in the fall. I'm actually hosting a, a tour of Israel next year. I'm going to be you're going to hear more about that. Anyway, so in January, Dan and I go to Israel, and I say, now part of this, what I want to do is I actually want to hike from Jesus' hometown in Nazareth to Capernaum. Can you pull this map up? I said, I want to hike this from Nazareth down on the bottom left all the way up to Capernaum where he lived. It says when Jesus turned 30, he went from Nazareth, his hometown, and he went, and he, and he, and he went to Capernaum. Now, there's a trail there now called the Jesus Trail. So anyway, to give you perspective on how much Jesus walked, the very first day, the first day, all we did was walk to Cana. Can you show that map here? All we did was walk to right there, the first day. And I'm like, should we just turn it into two hikes? Should we tr- uh, to hike twice as much? And I'm like, that's not very far. We're going to crush this. I, I am, I'm, we're going to crush this. Like, it's not going to be far enough. Like, we had to get a, a hotel at the, or we had to get a room at the Cana guest house. And I'm like, we're going to crush this. What are we doing? So anyway. So the very first thing we have to do is to get up out of Nazareth. There is a famous uh, stairs, stairs that go up 400 steps. And this is the beginning of it. And then eventually these steps go like this. So we get to the top of the steps. I don't know how Dan was, but I was ready to literally die. I'm like, there's no way we're going to make this. Anyway, we get to the top. And finally, after a while, we get out to this beautiful countryside. It was absolutely stunning. Um, uh, Olive trees and wild, I mean, horses going around. It was just absolutely beautiful. The views were amazing. So we're looking out at this view uh, the whole time. We saw the lilies of the field that Jesus talked so much about. We soon discovered there were no restrooms. This is Dan peeing by the side of the road. Finally, we reached Cana, the site of Jesus' first miracle, and there's a shepherd actually watching his flock, going and feeding them. And when we get to the Cana guest house, where we had a room to stay, we sat down, and this woman started bringing us stuff to drink. And I, I think she was like, I think you're, you're going to die. Like, because Dan went and he checked his health app, This was just from the top of the stairs in Nazareth all the way over to Cana. Look at this. We went 13.5 miles, 33,000 steps, 93 flights, and I was ready to die. And let me tell you, I've hiked all kinds of places here in the United States, but here's the thing. We call that a hike. Jesus called that Tuesday. (laughs) Walking long distance was, was normal for Jesus. Like we gloss right over passages like in Matthew 15, 21, it says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And we're like, ah, okay, and we just keep reading. What we don't realize is that is 48 miles straight through the mountains. Imagine if you needed to go to Tyre and Sidon, you needed to be there by tomorrow night, and you were going to hike 48 miles 
through the Poconos. Here's my question. What would your health look like emotionally and physically if every day of your life you took 20,000 steps? There's a reason in John chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. And so he, meaning Jesus, came to a town called Sychar in Samaria near a plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And it says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. When was the last time that that characterized your life? Like this was normal for you. I'm not talking about I'm going out for a run. I'm going to go on the Stairmaster. I'm talking about this was Friday for you. Like there were clear benefits of walking for Jesus. He slept better because he was actually tired. He stayed fit like my former mailman, Jeff Jeff was a mailman, and he used to talk all the time about how, I got to be honest, like literally, I walk like 35,000 steps a day. I cannot lose weight. I am throwing food down my mouth. And I said, man, I wish I could do that. He said, well, you can. It's called actually walking, Brian. You got to try it sometime, right? He opened himself up to meeting new people. Have you ever noticed the difference between driving through a neighborhood and walking through a neighborhood? Very, very different experience. And the walking gave him an opportunity to be with God. I need to report that God has answered all of our prayers. The Lord has worked. My wife, Lisa, is now open to the idea of getting a golden retriever puppy. The Lord has worked. Because who would not want a golden retriever puppy? Someone whose heart has been hardened by Satan. So here's the thing. So she's like, okay, I'm open to it. You just have to prove, number one, it will work with our yard. And number two, do you want to walk that dog two to three times a day? Like those of you who have labs, so those of you who have retrievers, you know the breed of dog is it's not a house dog. Meaning if you get that dog, it's cruel to that dog to stick that dog in the house. And so that's what I'm really wrestling with right now. And so, but here's the question. We, as a breed of a species, are designed physically every single day to get to the end of the day and be exhausted. If we don't get to the end of the day and we're not physically exhausted, someone said one time the recipe for depression and anxiety is an active mind in an inactive body. And so what I want you to do is I want to rate yourself right now. One, I ain't walking anywhere. Ten, Jesus got nothing on me. And, and where do you fall in the middle? Go, write that number down. There's a reason, because we're going to come back to this at the end. It's really important. Go ahead and write these numbers down. Okay, number two. Number two, big theological concept. Get ready for it. You ready? Number two, Jesus slept. Matthew chapter 8, we're, we're told this story. Then Jesus got in the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. They get him up there like, come on, dude, we're going to drown. He was like, why did you wake me up? I'm sleeping. Now that's commitment to sleeping. What it was modeling for us is if, if, a God, if God came to earth and modeled for us, what does it look like for a human being to experience Shalom, wholeness. It means you need to be very, very serious 
just like Jesus was, about sleep. So how serious are you about your sleep? Had a conversation a couple weeks ago for our 21st Century Jesus podcast, which launches at the beginning of July. We had a chance to interview Dr. Matthew Stanford, who's a professor of neurology at Baylor University Medical School. We were talking to him about the subject of anxiety. And I said, hey, while I've got you, and I'm going to share some of his stuff next week, but I was like, while I've got you, I have to be honest, one of the top questions people were asking on social media that they wanted me to ask you was about how anxiety affects sleep. Everyone wants to know how can they, can, how can they get a better night's sleep. So I want you to think literally about what he says and measure one to ten. Take a look. Sleep disruption. Anxiety affecting sleep. Do you have any tricks up your sleeve to help people get a better night's sleep when they're struggling with anxiety? Yeah, sleep problems are probably the number one complaint of all the clients that come here to the center. Uh, almost all mental health clients complain of sleep. Either it's, it's from their illness or it's from their medication or it's a combination of both. Um, well, everything we do usually in the evening is anti-sleep. Uh, that's just kind of how it is for us. Uh, you should not eat within two hours of going to bed. Uh, you should cut down your consumption of caffeine. Uh, you need to use what's called proper sleep hygiene. Uh, we do sleep better in a cold environment, so turn your temperature down when you go to bed. You should only sleep in your bed. You should not read in your bed. You should not watch TV in your bed. You should only sleep there. You have to train your body that this is a place that you sleep so that it kind of kicks in when you get in there. You should stay away from video screens for at least an hour prior to going to bed because the blue wavelength of the video screen actually stimulates your brain, makes it less likely that you'll be able to fall asleep. And what do we do? We sit in bed, watch TV, read a book. You know, we do the exact opposite. Um, you need to have a sleep routine. Every night, you need to do exactly the same thing before you go to bed. So if you normally, if you're the kind of person that, you know, you, you wash your face, you brush your teeth, you do the, you know, you let the dog out, that, that's what you do every night and you should do it exactly the same every night. Again, this is part of training your body that it's time to go to sleep. You also should have a set bedtime and a set wake time. Whether you're asleep, whether you're sleepy or not, you go to bed at 11 every night. You get in the bed, you turn out the lights, you close your eyes. And you get up at the same time every day. And what you will find if you'll do these things, so you, you, you do your, your, your pre-sleep routine for the 20 minutes before you go to bed. So you start it at 1040. You're in bed at 11 o'clock, lights out, eyes closed. And you, lie, you lay there whether you go to sleep or not. You will go to sleep. And you get up every day at 6 o'clock or whatever. What you will find over time if you'll do those things is that you will train your body to be sleepy at 1040 every night. Hmm. your body will tell you you need to go to sleep. We are, again, it's just this chaotic environment that we live in, constant entertainment, on the phone, um, you know, texting, this and that. It's uh, uh, everything we do is just you're, you're stimulating your cortex. And you're making it less likely that you're actually going to be able to go Right, to it's sleep. like we were never, <clears throat> excuse me, meant to be stimulated 24 hours a day, seven days right. a week, but that's exactly. the way we've conditioned ourselves to be. Lean over to the person next to you and tell them your number right now. And that if you know this person, I want you to tell them what their number actually is. Go. 
All right, let's keep going. Number three. When God became a human being, Jesus was committed to calling a place home. I love this verse. Mark 2, 1 says, A few days later when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now I want you to think about that. Jesus' home was in Nazareth. But when he went to Capernaum, he made that his home. And I want you to think about how many emotional problems... How, how, how a lot of the emotional weight is started from the fact that we aren't willing to drive a stake in the ground and say, this is our home. Like, so Richard, Dr. Richard Swenson wrote a book called The Overload Syndrome, and he talks about the strain that moving places on a family and on a person. There's a financial strain, obviously, but there's a relational strain because Dr. Richard Swenson says it takes three to four years to reestablish the relationships that you lost. So the tendency is, because people will move on a regular basis, they will cocoon. So instead of developing deep, sustaining relationships, they will have a cocoon effect. I don't know if you know this, but 14% of the United States population moves every year. 40 million people. I want you to think of the weight of the, of the emotional difficulties that come from moving, the effects on kids, the effects of uprooting in those relationships. And so what Jesus came and he modeled that he went and he built a home. Like a lot of people will say, well, Jesus was homeless. No, he wasn't. Jesus built a home in Capernaum. He was a tecton. He was a builder. There was a, there's a phrase in the Gospels, as the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What he's talking about is being an itinerant preacher of going and traveling different places. But he made Capernaum his home. He built a life there. And, and, and so Dr. Richard Swenson says, make a conscious decision to sink in roots. One house, one town, one church for a decade. Plant a one high or a one-foot-high apple tree in your yard and don't move until it yields a bushel. Better yet, plant an acorn and don't move until the grandchildren build a fort in its branches. Doing this will encourage us to invest in relationships and learn to deal with the issues over a longer period of time. You ready? So from 1 to 10, how are you doing? Are you constantly thinking about, oh, when we do it wrong, we do them, we move, and that sort of thing. Where are you on 1 to 10 right now? Objectively, 1 to 10, how are you doing on making this place your home? Number four, Jesus only owned what he needed. A lot of people, are, a lot of people have this perception of Jesus that Jesus was against possessions. Jesus was never against owning stuff, ever. Jesus was against needlessly owning stuff because there's that old saying, you can tell the stress that a man or a woman carries by the number of keys that they have on their, their key ring. Possessions have a time, or uh, possessions have a tendency when we have too much, they have a tendency to start weighing on this, the care and the upkeep for stuff. I don't know if you know this, the average home in the United States has 300,000 individual items in it. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size over the past 50 years. One out of every 10 Americans rent 
off-site storage. And I want you to notice this. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks that we have. And so what Jesus wants you to do is look at every single thing that you own and Marie Kondo that thing, man. Look at that thing and ask, do I really truly need this? And if you don't, you sell it, give it away, or pitch it because it's extra weight for the journey. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone room to room, looked at all of your stuff and said, do we really need this stuff? Rank yourself one to ten. What's your number? Number five, Jesus ate real food. Don't you find it interesting that when God came to earth, he never ate, he never put into his mouth refined sugar. He literally never ate refined sugar. His diet consisted of vegetables, fruits, fish, occasional lean meats, and taco pizza from Rocco's. That's all he had. That was it. That was it. So just imagine of what would happen emotionally and physically if we eliminated all additives, all preservatives, all chemicals, and all sugar from our diet. When Jesus got up in the morning, he went to the market. Actually, after he went to the market, bought food, took it home, and ate it. And the food that he got spoiled by the next day. There was no refrigeration, so it forced them to go get every single day fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, catch fish, and, and, and eat lean meat. So how are you doing? One to ten in that area. Number six, Jesus modeled for us and had close mission-minded friends. He had close friends. I'm not talking about he had, he kept in touch with his drinking buddies from his Penn State days. He had close mission-minded friends who helped him in his walk, and they helped each other in their walk. Dr. Tom Whiteman, one of the psychologists that we talked about, he said, Brian, I would have a lot less clients if people had better friends. So on uh, Friday, uh, a friend that I've had here for 19 years, uh, we went biking. Uh, We went, um, you know, have you ever biked up on Jim Thorpe on the Lehigh Valley Gorge? Anyway, so we caught a transport from Jim Thorpe, and they took us up to Whitehaven, 25 miles north, and then we biked down the Lehigh Valley Gorge. And We actually saw a black bear. It was really cool. And he was freaked out. Come on, let's go. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm getting a picture of this thing, man. I'm putting this thing on Instagram. And uh, so we're we're biking by these bears, and we're having these conversations all day, and we just spent the whole day together, and it was just so life-giving. To have someone, there's a time and a place when we need to be building and investing relationships with people who are far from God. We need to do that. Because all of us were far from God at some point. But we have to have relationships with like-minded, mission-minded people who are going to help us grow in our faith. And he modeled that. Like, why would God need friends? Why? 
He didn't need friends. He modeled for us having close friendships of mission-minded people who get what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So rate, rate yourself right now, 1 to 10. All right, last one. Jesus had a mission that was worth dying for. He got up every day thinking about how he can make more and better disciples, which is the mission of our church. Every day he got up and asked the question, how can I help more people get to heaven? And every day he got up and he asked, how can I bring heaven to earth and impact people's lives, people in need, the poor, that sort of thing? So are you a disciple of Jesus and are you passionate about his mission and are you waking up every day in alignment with that mission? Because having a reason to live, two greatest days in a person's life, two greatest days, when a person is born and when a person figures out why they were born. One of our great American writers said this. Are you a disciple of Jesus and passionate about his mission? So rank yourself from one to ten in that. Okay. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at these are the seven categories that are there right now. And if you were listening and you were actually writing down numbers, that's awesome. If you didn't, go into hell. But I want you to go ahead. I want you to go ahead. And what I want you to do is I want you to add up those numbers now. Write them down on a piece of paper. Add them up in your head. What's your total numbers? And the reason, because I'm going to give you a chart here in a second that's going to lead into what we're talking about next week. What's your number? And once you get that number, I want you to lean over to the person next to them, next to you, and I want you to share your number with the person next to you. Okay? Total? Can you put those back up there? Okay. Well, here's the chart anyway. The categories are on the left-hand side. And what you're going to notice, whatever number that you come up with, are you at least functioning 80% in all of these categories? If you are, you're a green light. You're ready to go. You're good. You probably don't have a lot of concern about your emotional health. You're not going to have a propensity. If you are 56 to 70 in your number, there's no risk, at least physiologically for you, for depression, for anxiety, or a whole host of other issues. If your number is between the 50% and 80%, if you have 35 to 56, you're in the yellow light. You have a moderate risk. You ought to be concerned. If your number is 23 to 35, you're at the bottom third to half, you're at a high risk for emotional, emotional issues that you're going to carry. You cannot function very long Eating crap, as a friend told me, when you eat crap, you feel like crap. When you don't have friends, when you're not exercising, when you're not sleeping well. And then if you're in the bottom third, you're at an extreme risk. And so my question to you is, what is your number and what is your color? Are you green? Are you yellow? Are you red? 1 John 2, 6 said, whoever claims to live in him, must live as Jesus did. Are you? And so what I'm going to challenge you is I want you to share when we're done with the service, as you're walking out, I want you to lean to the person next to you, and I want you to share what's the one thing you're going to do this week 
that's going to bring yourself closer in alignment with the way God modeled for us, the way we're supposed to live here on earth. Because in doing so, we're going to experience a greater amount of emotional health, which we're going to talk about more next week. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for modeling for us. This is what whole living looks like. Lots of reasons, lots of excuses, lots of issues, lots of things weighing on us. Help us to bring our life in alignment with how you model the life that is truly life. We look to you, the author of life, and ask for your help this week as we bring our lives in alignment with the way that you lived and showed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.